In October of 2018, a group of St. Louis University's graduate students disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while researching the connection between rhetoric, composition, and witchcraft. Since then, only these episodes of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina have been found. The Witchcraft of Writing. In 1945, in A Rhetoric of Motives, Kenneth Burke presents a conception of magic not as a form of bad science, but as a theory of applying the power of rhetoric to the natural world. After all, what rule says that the inexplicable, often irrational power to use words to move people can't move stones or the spirits that may dwell in those stones? This thinking led me to Jacqueline de Romilly's Magic and Rhetoric in Ancient Greece, where her examination of the connection between the two led her to write, One can love style and admire the power of speech without believing in witchcraft, luckily enough, but the fact remains that such a view of oratory reckons with the irrational. When one begins with the irrational, it's hard to know when to stop. In this series, we seek to follow down these rabbit holes of irrationality, to follow where it leads us and see it entangled in spaces, bodies, and politics through history. And in our very first episode, Carol Hogan Downey talks about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn's influence on Irish theater in the 19th century. Welcome to our first episode of the Witchcraft of Writing. Apologies to William Sloan. With me today is one of SLU's Victorianist grad students, Carol Hogan Downey. Hey there. And Carol's here to talk a little bit about uh, her own research in the 19th century and Victorian studies of mystical practice, tarot, and astral projection. And, well, Carol, why don't you just start by telling us a little about how you got into studying this? Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, apart from obviously it just sounding like a really fun topic um, that many Victorianists are interested in because of that reason, it has to do with a dissertation chapter that I will be working on in the coming months. I'm looking at, in my dissertation, I'm looking at the influence of the playwright Dion Poussicot, his theatrical events, and the inf- the way that they influence later Irish theater events. And uh, this chapter will be dealing with William Butler Yeats's The Countess Kathleen and Florence Farr, who starred in and directed this play, their collaboration uh, as writer, director, actress on the play and what they called their new art, which is a form of speaking to music or speaking a musical style of recitation. And it was very much influenced by their work together in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was an 1890s or 1880s into the 1890s um, occult group that studied and practiced magic, kind of cobbled together from Christian, Jewish, well, Christian being Rosicrucian, Jewish, Kabbalistic, um, and pagan. You mentioned sources. a lot about that, particularly with uh, Far, uh, before we were recording this, that she was an Egyptologist. Yes. Uh, so later in her life, um, as the the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn started to change and splinter in different ways, um, she had been a leader. She began studying a lot of Egyptian artifacts and Egyptian culture, I believe, in the British Library, and 
you know, fashion became an Egyptologist, um, not in the like academic sense that we would probably use the word now, but studying it a great deal, interested in the mystical, um, magical qualities mm-hmm. related to that, and wrote a several um, what she would call she called magical plays that deal with these Egyptian this Egyptian culture and mysticism that she looked into. Now, these uh, magical plays, is that related to, again, as we spoke before, Far's work as educating and initiating people into the practices of magic? Yeah, it is. Um, the The magical plays um, are branching off from, you know, or similar to the rituals um, in some ways that the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, would practice. Um, of course, they are still practicing now. You can you can look up their website and watch one of their ritual or part of one of their rituals on YouTube. But um, the 1890s version, at least, had these three different orders. Um, there's the outer order or outer circle, I believe. I'm still beginning my research on this. Um, the inner order or inner circle, and then there's a third tier that um, may or may not actually have human beings, as we see them now and it could be some sort of like god-like or spiritual mm-hmm. beings some people think that maybe it was like alchemists that have existed since ancient times they're Immortal different spirits and... yeah it could mm-hmm. be a lot of things but um far when she began in the outer circle a big part of what they're doing or were doing they were doing was teaching people in that outer circle to read tarot to scry um to practice a few kind of more material, I don't want to say material. Well, more not mundane, but something that you things that people who aren't involved in this organization would have heard of. We've heard of tarot. We've heard of of scrying. Of um, I think astral projection is something that they were working on in that that area as well. And part of that is the ritual that just learn. It, it is pedagogical in that sense, like teaching mm-hmm. them to work on that skill. Um, absolutely. Now, yeah, when we were first talking about this, what was kind of interesting was this idea of, um, so this comes from Deromaly's Magic and Rhetoric in Ancient Greece. And one of the things Deromaly claims is the big objection, one of the big objections Plato specifically had to the work of the sophist uh, Gorius is that he believed that magic is something that could be like in rhetoric's relationship to magic and Gorgias' ability to like induce emotions and whatnot and uh, conjure up like thoughts is something that Gorgias claimed he could teach to anybody. And so it's interesting to me with like far in that we have this new uh, many, many centuries, millennia literally later, um, fifth century BC to the 19th century um, of this idea of how do you teach these practices that enable you to do something that is magical, this astral projection. Um, do you have more you could say specifically? I'm interested in tarot for this. Yeah. Um, so tarot, their work with tarot is something that I'm still trying to look into. Um, imagine, of course, as you might imagine, if you just search even in um, academic resources for tarot, you're going to find a lot of contemporary texts on how to read tarot, how to like expand your tarot readings. But the um, the Hermetic Order absolutely had their own take on tarot, which I'm still trying to look into um, dating it because I could look on their website now, but I want to make sure that it is 19th century stuff. But I can tell you certainly about sort of the development of tarot 
mm-hmm. leading up there that I know about. And of course, if that's what you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. Tell me about tarot. I actually don't know very much, and I wouldn't be surprised if most of our listeners haven't had more than just a casual experience yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, so many of our listeners, I don't know if you know, uh, or I think you do, that uh, tarot originally was just play as a kind of playing cards. I mean, mm-hmm. no different and no more magical than the deck that we use to play solitaire now. Around the late 18th century, um, there is this, I can't remember his name right now, um, but maybe we can list it in the mm-hmm. uh, post about this. But this French man um, <laughs> who, who took an interest in tarot and decided that or determined somehow that the trump cards in the tarot deck have a sort of occult magical significance mm-hmm. and he ends up ended up publishing or putting out some sort of pamphlet based arguing that the trump cards are actually from the book of thoth which i know you know more about than mm-hmm. i do but um well actually that kind of leads into yeah uh thoth is the Egyptian god. Uh, Thoth, also pronounced Thoth or Theuth um, sometimes, is an Egyptian god often associated with Hermes uh, Trismegistus, the Greek god. And it's particular interest to us, because I already mentioned Gorgias and Plato, in the Phaedrus, Socrates relates a story of Thoth creating the concept of writing. This is where we get the pharmacon, the, the idea of poison, the poison that cures, that the writing would destroy memory and replace it with writing. So Thoth is one of those points where we intersect. He's the god of literacy as well as the god of magic. Mm. And that's one of our very early connections of magic and literacy. And so Thoth, power of the tarot, I don't know, the connection of tarot as a form of, if you can literally read the tarot, you can read the future. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, then, so one of the things then, kind of a general, again, as I'm uh, beginning my research into, and I don't know how relevant it will be to what I'm doing, but into what they were doing in the Golden Dawn and uh, the Sphere, which was a group that some of the adepts founded later. Um, Far and Yates were involved. They founded it later after the splintering of the Golden Dawn in the late 1890s. But the the tarot, ge- the general premise for those who don't know, is that you know there's this deck, and there are different ways you can lay out the cards. Usually you will have the person whose tarot you're reading or if you're reading your own, do something, sometimes touch it or think about something and pull cards and you lay them out. There's one of the more common formations is called the Celtic cross. And so there will be cards actually laid out kind of in a cross formation with a different, I think a circular outside of it. I've seen it done before. Um, but each placement of the card gives it different significance. And so you start with this card is your future. or this, Sorry, this card is your past. This card is you, This card, um, your thoughts or whatever. This is your fears. This is your present. And, you, and kind of this is where your future could go. And so, of course, you flip the card over and um, or you pick up the card and look at it. And it's simply, you know, the different characters or figures on them, the cup, the lovers, what have you. The sets of the... Yeah, and so those are just the images, and the craft of the tarot is reading and understanding the meaning of these things, interpreting what it means about the question that might be being asked or the person you're reading on or or something like that. So there's this interpretive value that happens. And uh, that sounds kind of interesting personally to me because uh, to tie into... um, from Walter Ong's uh, Language is Hermeneutic, 
he makes a claim in there about the etymology of the word logos, mm. which we Greek translate usually as word or logic or the like. But he tries ties it into the uh, pre-Indo-European, uh, well, also Greek, but related to, in Greek, the legane, which he takes through that uh, PIE to be sort of the aspect of collection and organization to, to pick up and set down in an order. Mm. And so the idea that written words are about arrangement of shapes. And so the tarot becomes about an arrangement of these things that mm -hmm. is then interpreted. But how did the Hermetic order use the tarot? I'm not actually sure on that one. <laughs> That's something I'm going to have to look more into. From what I understand at this point, they did have, uh, if not their own version of the deck, their own style of reading. Um, I know that their goals usually mm -hmm. were, um, they, they, while telling the future might be some part of it, most of the magic um, conducted in the Hermetic Order was sort of a self-help. Um, I believe Denis Denisov, in an article on Branch Collective, uh, discusses this. That it, it looks kind of like some psychology aspects, this mm. desire of self-enrichment, of spiritual development to some extent. And so the the tarot is going to be in service of that enlightenment and development, kind of tapping into this spiritual world going on around at all times. Huh. Okay. So it's not so much an aspect of specifically reading the future, but an, if I'm right on this, sort of an attunement to the rhythms of the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Connection, I think. Absolutely. That attunement to what's going on around. And, and so the future could be part of it, but it's in service of attuning oneself, of mm -hmm. enlightenment. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. And so uh, we've talked a bit about tarot um, in the Hermetic Order. What other practices did they or far have as a means of teaching people this attunement? So one area that Farr particularly excelled in, um, in the Hermetic Order, they, they noticed it, and she continued it on in her artwork, was just, they called it the vibration of her voice, um, mm. or her voice itself. They're very interested in vibrations. Uh, before we recorded this, I know you and I list, actually watched that video. And if we and, did our ritual, right? Yes, uh. and we did look at a ritual <laughs> and kind of motioned through it and learned too late that you're not supposed to point your magical dagger at the earth. So we'll see what we've summoned mm -hmm. in the CAI lab here. Lauren but far, <laughs> let us know if we did it right or not. Listen for a beautiful voice. But mm -hmm. no, uh, so the vibration of a word, like the sound waves, which is something they were very interested in at this point in the 19th mm -hmm. century, um, how it was affecting things. But, you know, vi vibrating on a larger scale on some sort of mystical Level. Harmony? Yeah, it's this, and it's very much this meeting of science and mysticism of this mm -hmm. concept of harmony. They had special words that the vibrations were supposed to do things with uh, in their rituals, and Far's voice, um, from the first time people are really listening to her, her voice is really prominent or prominently mentioned. I mean, it's, I want to hear it. I've never heard it, but um, there's like an unearthly quality to what, yeah. what. So we're talking 19th century far and Yates. Mm -hmm. um, there's no recordings of this, or is there? I have not found a recording of Far's voice. If someone knows of one, I'd love to hear mm -hmm. it. Um, this is possibly by this point we're getting. I don't know exactly beyond wax cylinders. There probably is one somewhere, maybe. But um, mm -hmm. 
she there are things that we can see about her voice, the, the effects that it had on other people's art, which, of course, is more what interests me. That was it was so significant. The, and what she and Yates both felt were a magical quality of the vibrations of her voice, that it was at one point Yates said that he was interested in kind of entrancing audiences. They wanted it to have this hmm. uh, effect that brought audiences up out of themselves and um, move them to a new state of consciousness. And he used, he wrote his work and, and kind of scored it in musical ways, kind of, in a way that would accentuate her voice. You and know, she became the principal on that. And that uh, kind of actually brings us back to Diramali's comment on Gorgias as a conjurer, mm. that this uh, spellbinding vocal skill is something that can conjure something. Do you feel this, like, uh, for Yeats, conjuring, I'm thinking, uh, oh, I can't remember the play, but the one where the farmers are visited by the spirit of Ireland who's lost her four green fields. and Oh, yeah, Kathleen Nehulahan. Kathleen Nehulahan and summoning, conjuring in her, his audiences this sense of Irish identity or nationalism. I think, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely relevant in there. Farr wasn't in that play, but Maud Gunn, who was also in the Hermetic Order of the Golden oh, really? Dawn, was the star. She became, he always had his muse. Um, so first it was Farr, and then uh, Countess Kathleen. Farr's playing Alil, a bard, and Maud Gunn's playing the Countess Kathleen. Um, not to be confused with Kathleen Nehulian, completely different figures, mm-hmm. but... Um, this she became this entrancing figure and it had an effect that Yates quite hadn't quite anticipated. It was really taken up by political nationalists uh, as this mm-hmm. charge to go fight. And a lot of things in that play seem more critical of or questioning that figure of Kathleen Nuhulahan or uh, Aaron mm-hmm. as the Irish saw her trying to drive people to fight. I mean, she keeps saying all these men have died for me. And um, Michael Fury, the, the male prot- the protagonist who goes and decides to fight for her, gives up getting married to go do this. And so there's this, it stops the ability of reproduction of the nation, all of these problems. She's kind of vampiric in that huh. way. So the mesmeric qualities, especially in these vampiric characters, matter. And mesmerism in Irish vampires has a long history. <laughs> Oh, no, no, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about that, because now we're moving into the other kind of witchcraft. We've got, like, so we started with talking about Far as a sort of seeking enlightenment through these mystical practices and understanding, mm-hmm. and then that led into this idea of this uh, uh, conjuring up these great spirits and communing with spirits and transitioning to a higher level. But now we're getting to sort of a dark side to it, that this mesmerism and hypnotism can be associated with these uh, parasitic vampiric forces. If you'd like to elaborate more on that. Absolutely, yeah. So there are earlier sources, um, but this association with the vampire and the Celtic, the earliest that I can find, you begin with not even Irish, but Lord Byron. (laughs) uh, No relation. No relation. (laughs) Uh, With the figure Lord Lord Ruthven. and that's, you know, this Scottish Celtic vampire figure I, I am not as familiar with. But Polidori takes it up to, to write the vampire. In the 1840s, Dion Boussicot, my boy, uh, takes this and translate and develops the, the vampire into an English language play. Um, at one point called The Vampire, at one point called The Phantom which is intriguing in and of itself because hmm. the vampire is always corporeal in this. But 
the movements that the vampire is supposed to be making in that that Boussico played, of course, he he played the vampire in this and named uh, Lord Raby. And he's usually Welsh in the, in the scripted version of the play, although different performances, they would actually make him Scottish. And I, I think just name him Lord Ruff. Then, like, let's just go ahead and show that we're where our sources lie. But he has this connection to the land that he has to, when he is, his powers come from killing a virgin on Mount Snowdon and then lying before the moonlight to be, like, kind of absorbing the life force of this virgin. Hmm. But his power over people, over the virgin to get her there is through a kind of mesmerism. And Boussicot's uh, use of that is actually, you see the movements of the vampire, the gestures that he's making, actually hyperbolically mimicking the movements in the practice of mesmerism, which had been popular in the uh, 18th century, um, similar to hypnotism, but whereas hypnotism really deals more with like an unconscious, a psyche, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mesmerism is this sort of much closer to a pseudoscience at this point. They're dealing with this idea that you have ether flowing through your body. It's this Mm. magical fluid type stuff. And different movements and sounds are going to direct the ether to be balanced in the right way. (laughs) (laughs) And so those movements, he's actually mesmerizing his victims, which comes from anxieties about the French Revolution and the use of mesmerism to Mm. like... Excite the blood. Right. You know, that's interesting because like, this uh, a lot of this. Uh, I haven't actually recorded the intro for the witchcraft of rhetoric, uh, witchcraft of writing yet. But uh, one of the things I want to include in there, the, sort of the the genus of this, is Kenneth Burke's argument. Um, so apologies is redundant. That the idea of magic stems from the idea of applying the the the, the logic of rhetoric to the natural world, mm-hmm. and that like I can. I'm thinking like uh, the the Finnish national hero Vainamoinen, who mm-hmm. can sing castles into existence, yeah. and the like, because you know a great poet singer type can mobilize the people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eric Havelock, um, another associate of Walter Ong, um, has a lot about this in his. Um, Oh, I cannot remember the name of his major book, which is on my comps list, which is great not to remember the name. But Havelock's uh, argument is that, like, the idea of the muse emerges mm-hmm. from these poets trying to understand where does this power come from that mm-hmm. enables me to move people and, and spark memory and make things last? And where does this skill come from? And likewise, it's just this continual history of rhetoric of just, like, the mysterious power of language and so we were talking about, like, the scientific harmony and mm-hmm. resonances. And then even earlier, we're talking about mesmerism and the idea that these fluids might be responsive to sound. And then even earlier, we've got this divine power. And it just seems like throughout this, we're seeing continuously this rhetorical aspect of magic. Mm-hmm. That's just really fascinating to me in both, like, nationalistic attitudes, in uh, scientific attitudes, and especially in these artistic attitudes and agendas. But is there anything else you'd like to add about Florence Farr or Yeats and uh, the, what is it, sorry, the Hermetic Society of the Golden Dawn? Yeah, the Hermetic Society. Um, I think that maybe to bring that full circle with the conversation we were having about vampire stuff, too, because it's not merely that Kathleen Houlihan is vampiric, but there are, um, at this point, they've, I forget who makes these claims, but there were claims that Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, mm-hmm. was a member of the Hermetic Society of the Golden Dawn 
in addition to being a theatrical mover and shaker. How big was this organization? It was... Um, it was really there were like, different type chapters or orders like mm. all over, but it just... A lot of these people were in the same social circles. They were the celebs of the time. And the Irish celebs of the time, too. Florence Farr surrounded herself with Irish writers, mm. but <laughs> kind of being their muse. But... Um, there is something about the vampire and the sound, and it has to do with there's something witchy about it too. They're often connected. Um, that I think dovetails really well with these ideas about rhetoric because the vampire being this far more predatory, I think, image of using that magical power over people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so there's like how we understand magical ritual as on one hand, like this image of somebody's ability to conjure up um, strength is and binding the community and all that. Those are all very positive motions. But at the same time, you've got Plato and Socrates with this real anxiety that, like, it's not, it, it enables predators. It, it empowers them to prey on you and to, like, dwell in the midst and manipulate the mob. And so there's a lot of uh, those fears that come with, like, it's a mysterious power. Mm-hmm. That can be used for good, for evil, and those anxieties, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. All right. Well, thank you very much, for uh, Carol, for being here on the Witchcraft of Writing. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you again for being the first on our original Facebook post to propose <laughs> the uh, rhetoric. <laughs> Was it witchcraft or trickery? Witchcraft or fake news. Witchcraft it, or fake news. A comment made in jest, but this is what happens in... of my serious (laughs) academic pursuits started as jokes. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. And remember to follow us on Twitter at CAI underscore lab. Thank you for listening.